Welcome to Acts chapter 21. As I was saying earlier this morning, my name is Pastor Nate. Um, Pastor Chris is actually preaching in Seaforth, the booming metropolis of Seaforth, Ontario. Um, if you haven't been to Godrich, you haven't been to Seaforth. So, um, but be praying that the word of the Lord may go forth in that. Their service actually doesn't start till 1030, I think. So we can be praying for that. But as you turn there, um, have you ever been wrongfully accused of anything? And if you say no, then you're probably incredibly ignorant and aren't listening to what's going on around you. But uh, the other day, I was walking and I was trying to accomplish more than one thing at one time, which was I was trying to get directions to the next place that I needed to go. I had just picked up my children from school, so we were walking on a path. And so I was the classic at that moment looking at my phone and walking at the same time sort of situation. And as I was walking this path that I have walked hundreds of times before, I had forgotten that for some reason or another they had taken that, you know how sometimes they put a pole in, in the path? Um, I didn't run into the pole because they had taken the pole away. Uh, but what I did run into was the thing, in the, the stump in the ground that was metal. And so my toe right now is pretty gnarly because I was wearing sandals. But, you know, I remember uh, I got home. I, had, I dropped my kids off. I had another appointment, and then I got home. And um, my wife says to me, your child is very disappointed in you. Uh, and I said, what? What did I do? Um, and she said, she heard you say a word that, uh, and I said, I did not. I was wrongfully accused. You know what my reaction to that was? Yelling and saying, get down here and talk to me about this. How do you react when you're wrongfully accused? What is your first reaction that happens? How do you remain calm in those situations? Now, that's a funny story. But there are many serious situations where we can be wrongfully accused that can break our hearts and, and do loss. You feel like you're being stabbed in the back. How do you react when that situation happens? What is your reaction? Are you able to remain calm? As we continue on in Acts, we've seen that Paul is getting wrongfully accused. He's been wrongfully accused numerous times. He's been told that he says things that he doesn't say, which is always the best things, right? I'm being sarcastic, if, if I need to explain that. Because we understand that everything that he's doing up till this point, and we talked about this last week, he's in the temple right now for the sake of the unity of the church. He's actually given of himself. Because of the freedom he has in Christ, he is free to give of, give of himself for the church. So he sets aside his preferences to do something for the unity of the church. So he's in the temple at this moment and he's walking around and lo and behold, what happens at this moment is yet another accusation of him. He is being wrongfully accused. And through this passage, I see something amazing. Paul remains calm during this whole time. And I ask myself, how? Because I struggle with it. I struggle with being calm even in giving defense of yourself. Do we do that with a calmness? So if you have your Bibles with you, um, page 543 of that blue Bible in the chair in front of you, if you don't have a Bible at home, I encourage you to take that one and bring it home. 
uh, just as long as you read it. And we would love to sit down with you and talk to you more about the God who has revealed himself in those pages. So Acts chapter 21, we're starting at verse 27. The word of the Lord says this. When the seven days were almost complete, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the, co- of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion." He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. And some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And as he could not learn the facts about uh, facts because of this uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he had come to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we just come to continue in worship. Lord, this whole time together is about making much of you. Uh, In our listening, in our singing, in our preaching, in our giving. And so, Lord, I want to indeed make much of you, and I can't do this on my own. So, Lord, by your Spirit, I pray that you will turn this sermon out to be well. Lord, by your Spirit, help me to preach this sermon with what is needed. Use this sermon to bring glory to your name, joy to your people, and salvation to the lost. And amen. So as we continue in verses 27 to 30, we see that rumors turn into a riot. It's funny how, uh, yet again, I'm always reminded going through Scripture why God hates gossip so much, because here's another example of why it's so bad. Uh, Rumors turn into a, a riot, as we see in verses 27 to 30. In verse 27, Paul is almost at the end of his time of purification. And I need to make this uh, a point, which I might say later on again, is that this is not, what is happening is not because of something that the uh, elders of the church in Jerusalem have done, okay? The text is actually pretty clear on this. Um, There are some people who would say that this was a mistake on Paul's side, and I I don't think so. I, I think this was very purposeful. And at at any date, at any time, we know that God is in control and sovereign over all things anyways. So as we see this, he's in this time of purification. And what is this purification? We need to remember um, that Paul had been through the Gentile territory. He had been unclean as he was entering into homes and breaking bread and having fellowship with Gentile Christians as he continued to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as he was coming back into the Holy Land of Israel, he was considered unclean. And in order to participate in the Nazarite vow that the four men that we saw last week were walking through, 
and how Paul was asked by James to pay their way, he had to be clean in order to participate in that, in that temple ritual of cleanliness. So this was a process, and this was a seven-day process of two special ceremonies of atonements that pictured how God would wash you clean again. It would happen on day three, and then again on day seven. So Paul has almost done this whole thing, and he had to be feeling, man, I'm almost done, finally. Because a week is, can be a long time. But then the Jews from Asia see him. And what has Paul been doing that would cause them to notice him? Right? This is why context is important. You see, Paul had been in Ephesus, which is in Asia, for three years. He had been proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ to the people in Ephesus and raising up the church and raising up elders and and deacons and and maturing people in the Lord. He had been causing havoc to the point that even the silver trade had been impacted by what was happening. And uh, and as a point of context as well, Asia um, in the biblical times is not what we consider Asia because we, when we think of Asia, we think everything east of uh, the Middle East all the way to China. But here we're talking modern-day Turkey, okay, where Ephesus is. And why there are a bunch of Jews in that area is because something is called the Great Dispersion, where the Jews were dispersed throughout the known world because of starting all the way from Assyria, when Assyria invaded, where God brought judgment upon his own people, the people scattered. So now they're in Ephesus, and they set up little communities all over the place. And part of the Jewish religion was that they had to go back to the temple to worship, to bring uh, sacrifices of atonement. So that's why they're back there for this time. And as they see Paul walking around in the temple for seven days, they go, hey, I know that guy. He's the guy that's causing me so much grief back home. Where there's already been a riot if we remember correctly. So seeing him in the temple, the enemies of the gospel don't waste any time, and they begin to stir up the whole crowd. And in verse 28, they cry for help as though Paul had been committing some sort of blasphemy, which is funny because why was he there in the temple to begin with? Was to actually be part of the ceremonial law. He was being purified. But they see Paul and they they start riling it up and getting everybody to come and join them. In fact, the word there means come and rescue, help us. It means rescue. And they have this intention of rescuing the temple and rescuing the law and and rescuing all the people who have been perverted by whatever Paul, they think Paul has been teaching. So they continue to move forward in that. And they begin to rile it up. And what are they accusing Paul of doing? See, first, what Paul had been doing was teaching everyone everywhere against the people. See, they're including not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles. Paul is leading everyone astray. He's against everyone. So we need to rescue them. It isn't just an issue for the Jews, but that Paul had been misguiding everyone, both Jews and Gentiles. But Paul isn't against the people. He never has been. 
In Romans 9, verses 1 to 5, it says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, he says, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belongs the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belongs the patriarchs, and uh, from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. He even continues on in Romans 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. He doesn't hate them. He loves them. In fact, his love for them is why he's there in the first place, that he may win more. I become as one who is under the law so that I may win more, he says. Which means he at no point is their enemy. He's been accused once again of something that he has never said. And yet here the Jews are viewing him as an enemy. He has only said, as has, has the church in Jerusalem, that the Gentile Christians should not be pressured to follow the law. Why? Because the law doesn't save. The law doesn't save. The second thing that they are accusing him of is because he's against the law. This would have been a big deal for the people of Israel, especially during this time of the Pentecost. The Jews would have been very zealous for the law at this festival because the whole festival was about fulfilling the law. And the Romans actually acknowledged this to the point that they would have a garrison there watching to make sure that nothing would go out of control. You know, I was reminded of a situation when I was actually in the uh, Middle East. I was in Jordan, and one of the missionaries at that time would warn us on Saturday, because that's when Mosque was there. He said, you guys should not go out wandering the streets on a Saturday. And my question was, why? Stop telling me what to do. Uh, and, but his, his response was very wise. He's like, because you don't know what was being said at the mosque at that time, because it could have been full of whatever. You know, I'm pretty pasty. I stand out, and I'm tall, right? I don't speak Arabic. I'm very English. But you see what can happen when the fires are stirred, and that is what's happening here. We must be sure that the fire that is, that is being stirred is not it, we need to be sure that the fire that is being stirred within our hearts is the gospel and not something else. Because if it's something else, this is the outcome, right? Riots. This accusation would have really stirred up the people. And we know that rumors are flying around town already because we saw that last week with James and the other elders. And there's actually a lot of parallels we see back to Acts 6 with Stephen. Because Stephen and Paul are accused of the same things. In fact, Paul and, and Stephen and Jesus are accused of the same things. No, there's, now there's another man who had watched Stephen being stoned for preaching the gospel who is now himself experiencing the same thing. And he will do that for the name of Jesus with joy. 
Why? Why would he do that? And they also accuse him of being against this place. Why would they bring that up? Because they thought that Paul had brought a Greek into the temple to defile the holy place, and this was a big no-no. In fact, this was such an important big no-no that the Romans, who are the Jews and everybody else, is not allowed to practice capital punishment. No one is allowed to practice capital punishment except for the Romans. Except for this. This was such a big deal for the Jewish people that if anybody who was not a Jew entered into the inner court, they were automatically considered dead. We know this because there's actually a a nameplate that you can go visit in a museum in Turkey that says this. There's been two that have been found in the late 1800s and the early 1930s. That actually states that in in Greek and in Latin, because those were the languages of the Gentiles, so you didn't have to tell that to the Hebrews, that if you entered into this, your death is on your own head. Right? So when we look at the reaction that is happening within this, Paul is being accused of something that's incredibly dangerous. And he would have been accused of something that is, um, he would have been accused of doing something as an accomplice and would have been put under the same death. The sign actually says, No foreigner may enter into the barricade which surrounds the temple and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. So as we picture uh, the temple, you kind of got to think of a box within a box within a box, right? With a gate that goes in the middle, right? The outer box, everybody could go into. The inner box, only the Jews could go into. And then the inner box, only a priest could go into. And someone's going to come and criticize. I know there's other boxes, okay? I'm just simplifying it, okay? So that is what Paul is being accused of. And I think Luke... Is, trying, uh, is tying in parallels to teach us something here. And Paul and Stephen are charged with the same thing, and we were, who are both accused by the Jews uh, during this Roman time of the very same things. Even when we look at the speech, which will happen next week as, week as Pastor Chris uh, begins to preach on the next passage, we will see more similarities. We've seen these accusations two other times as Stephen is, becomes the first martyr, and as Jesus is also killed himself. The irony is that Stephen and now Paul, that they were in the situation that they were in because they cared for the people, because they were so consumed by the gospel that they wanted other people to know the good news of Jesus Christ. So the assumption comes from the people from Asia thinking that Trophimus was there and the assumption is ridiculous because why in the world would Paul bring a a, a Gentile, a Greek, into that inner court knowing that that's what's going to happen? Hey, best buddy, why don't you come with me and walk into this place, which where you're going to get killed? No one in their right mind would do that especially Paul who loves people and cares for people and wants them to grow in the grace and the knowledge of their Lord and Savior, Trophimus would have been killed and Paul wouldn't have endangered his friends with that. And this is when we are reminded of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. The main point is here, the source of these accusations is that they thought that the law and the temple played a part in their salvation. 
They thought that they could, at some point, make themselves better before a holy God. They thought the more they did, the more they came to temple, the more they did whatever, the more festivals they went to, that they would be holy before a holy God, realizing that the law only showed how sinful they were and how desperately they needed to be saved by Jesus, by the long-awaited Messiah that Isaiah prophesied about, who would come to accomplish all the requirements that the law had. Galatians 2, 15 to 16 says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified, because no one could perfectly keep the law. No one. And Jesus makes that very clear. The the law says, uh, don't sleep with another man's wife. The problem is that that that's a heart issue. You've broken the law anytime you've lusted against another one who's not your spouse. No one, no one could keep the law perfectly, which means the law condemns us. But Jesus fulfills it. Jesus kept it perfectly so that anyone who repents of their sin and believes in Jesus Christ will have life. See, the people who riot riot because their way of salvation had been apparently mocked and undermined. They thought that if you did X, Y, and Z, then you'll be good to go. Or Z, let's say Z. But that's not what the gospel is. What Paul preached was that Jesus fulfilled the law of the prophets. Jesus attained our eternal salvation. No more were priests required to offer sacrifices and enter into the holy places like Hebrews 10 said. Jesus has done that all for us. Once and for all, by grace, through faith, we are made right before God. As Colossians 2 says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. It may not be the law for you and I, because, you know, we're not Jewish, I don't think. But we try to make sure we are some sort of goodness in us, in some sort of other ways. We try to take our rags, as dirty as they are, and we try to make them clean. You know, if you know a mechanic, they always have rags, right? They got to wipe their hands, right? And the problem is, no matter how much you wash those rags, they always remain dirty. And that's what our best work is to a holy God. Through Jesus' sacrifice, all people who repent and believe in the all-sufficient work of Jesus Christ, who are to be called his people, we are not saved by our own works because that would mean that we could boast. And don't tell me that you wouldn't because you would. We all like to boast. We always talk about the things that we did. Uh, Look at all the accomplishments I have done. Or this is who my parents are. Oh, I know that person. 
We, we like to boast in our own abilities, but we are saved by the work of Jesus Christ who fulfilled the requirements of the law as the long-awaited Messiah who was born of the Virgin Mary who grew up and died for the sins of his people. Sin that was committed against the holy God and deserving of eternal punishment, but by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we have been saved. That's it. And it's, and it's against the whole city, as we see here in verse 30. Then all the city was stirred up. And as the rumors begin to spread like wildfire, because that's what happens, we see a picture of how Israel itself had rejected Paul and therefore the whole gospel. And the people can ran together as an attempt to keep the temple pure and the temple police closed the doors so that the death of Paul, because they knew that Paul was going to be killed for this stuff, wouldn't defile the temple anymore. And we see that back in 2 Kings 11.15. You know, F.F. Bruce makes a good, sorry, a good observation. He says it this way. For Luke himself, this may have been the moment when the Jerusalem temple ceased to fill the honorable role he true uh, ascribed to its, in its twofold history. The, the exclusion of God's message and messenger from the house once called by his name sealed its doom. It was now ripe for destruction, which Jesus had predicted for it many years before. History actually tells us that not much longer that the temple gets destroyed. You know, riots ensue as the people reject the message of Jesus Christ and his messenger. Yet in all of this, Paul remains calm. He's calm during this whole time. Why is he calm? Is it not because his life is not bound to that law? Is it not bound to what these people thought of him? It's not bound to the idea of him losing his life or keeping his life. It's not bound to the one who had, per- it is now, sorry, it is now bound to the one who had purchased him from slavery, who freed him from the chains of death, who then heals his brokenness, making him whole in Christ. And as the people couldn't even wait to bring him out of the city like they did with Stephen, they begin to beat Paul right there. But God would providentially intervene to protect his servant because God wasn't done with Paul. Because where's Paul supposed to go? He's going to Rome. And we see God's providential hand at work here. And he understands that the reward is greater than the risk. And the risk is that if you proclaim the gospel, you might become a lightning rod to those who are enemies of the gospel. The real truth is that in proclaiming the freedom that, Christ, uh, that comes in Christ Jesus, we ourselves may find ourselves physically in bonds. As we see that the rumors turn into bonds in verses 31 to 36. This is a pretty big flashback to what Paul had already been through in Ephesus. And why does this message about Jesus bring so much anger? It's not just in the Bible we see this right here, right now. We also see it in our world today all the time. All the time. I have friends who, who, who go onto the street and they just simply stand there and they just proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. It's amazing how many people will come up to them and say hate to them. 
And as they were seeking to kill Paul, the Roman tribune found out because he's sitting up there on his hill and a tribune was someone who commanded a cohort of a thousand men. So this is a pretty important guy. So we need to understand what's happening. The Roman main base is not actually in the city, but they do have a garrison that overlooks the city. It was a fort called Antonis, named after Mark Antony. And he would stand there, and they would stand there and look over into the temple to make sure everything was in order because Romans loved order. And they would do anything and everything in order to make sure that there was no calm, that everything was calm. Uh, there was a funny social media trend going on this past couple of weeks about asking your husbands how many times they think about the Roman Empire. Every day, as, especially if you're an axe. Uh, that was my answer to my wife when, she, when I was asked. But as we see this, the Gentiles will also be ready to intervene as God's providential hand during this time. So the tribune grabs the centurions who commanded a, a hundred men, and once the people saw the tribune in verse 32 coming down, they stopped. Because if you've got about 200 soldiers, at least 200 soldiers, right? Because a tribune has a thousand, a centurion has a hundred, and there's at least two centurions. So if you have a at least 200 men in full-on battle gear running down the stairs from the, from the garrison and into the, temple of, uh, into the temple, into the courtyard of the Gentiles where Paul was being beaten to death, you stop. You probably kind of run away. And that's what happens. And in verse 33 to 34, the tribune takes Paul and, because he looks like the guy who's causing the problems. And he orders him to be bound in chains. And Paul is rescued from danger, but there won't be any miraculous release from captivity for him. And what we see is Agabus' prophecy that Paul will be bound and that the Jews will give him over to the Gentiles being fulfilled as he's chained between two soldiers and the tribune inquires who he was and what has been done. And once again, we see there's chaos and confusion because nobody knows why they're there. He's getting one answer from another person and another answer from another person. And they're just running around like a chicken with their head chopped off. So Paul is carried away, not because of physical weakness, but to prevent him from being torn limb from limb from an angry mob. The Romans had to carry him up those stairs, up to the, up to the barracks, up to the garrison, to, as, as the mob was so focused on violence of these people. And the, and the people who had once withdrawn out of fear are now overcome by anger to push at the soldiers and to grab at Paul. And as, they, as Paul is being carried up those stairs to the garrison, they cry out to him, away with him, which is a lot more than just saying, get him out of here. They're actually saying, do away with him. They want him dead. There's no, there's no wishy-washiness of this. It's like yelling at him, good riddance, judge him. And Paul was in trouble. And this is a similar fate of the one that we see with Jesus and Barabbas. See, Paul is walking in the footsteps of his Lord and Savior. 
He's being reminded, as Jesus told him in Acts 6, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. But he's calm. He's calm. As far as we can tell, he's not freaking out. When Luke is pretty good with details, he would tell us. And we see in his speech in the following chapters that he is calm, especially after being beaten to death. One commentary put it this way, the irony of all this is that Paul sees his whole experience of legal bondage as a result of and as an act of loyalty to Israel. He says at the end of the book, for the sake of the hope of Israel, I wear these chains. He is a prisoner not only because of his fellow Jews, but also for their sake. Thus, Paul's ritual action in the temple leads to the opposite of its intended effect. So as we get closer to the end of Acts, most of Jerusalem has now rejected the message about Jesus Christ. In fact, Jerusalem's not mentioned ever again in Acts. But once again, we see how Paul is an example of what it means to follow Christ, to take up our cross and to follow him. So, so what? Paul was wrongfully accused. We've all been wrongfully accused at one point. And that leads him to be bound in chains. And Paul is beginning a journey of suffering and injustice as an innocent man who is arrested for his commitment to the gospel. From here on out, we will see examples of how he continues to trust God as he argues his case but never forgets the, that the gospel is more important than his own freedom. And how does he do that? Because being bound to Christ brings peace when bound for Christ. And what does this mean to be bound to Christ? If you are in Christ, you are united with Christ. If you are in Christ, you share in his benefits and his blessings. If you are united with Christ, you are justified before a holy God where Jesus' righteousness has been imputed upon you. This brings assurance to our salvation. Being united to Christ, you have the Holy Spirit who is in you, who is making you more like Christ every day, sanctifying you. Being united with Christ, being bound to Christ, means that you have been adopted into God's family and have the privilege of calling the Holy God, the creator of the universe, Father. Like that to me is mind-blowing. I have a father who I love dearly and who loves me dearly. I, I, I understand, but I get the privilege of calling my father the creator of the universe. I get to call father. What an amazing thing. If you are united with Christ, you will be preserved in the faith because you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And maybe you're asking, okay, what does this mean for me right now, right here, right in this place? Well, it's the same for Paul. If you are bound to Christ, it gives you an assurance of your salvation, meaning you don't have to worry about your standing before a holy God anymore. It means that I get to boldly approach the throne of grace and pour out what's on my heart before a God who cares and listens. And I know that because he sent his only son to die for me on the cross. It gives me an identity that is rooted in Christ which means that if everything is taken away from me, if everything I am, if I can no longer be a pastor anymore, 
I am still Christ's. If I cannot, if, if, every, if, if it means that every ounce of my self-worth and, and purpose, everything that you desire can never be stripped away because it's united in Christ. My identity is in Christ. And that can never be taken away. It gives me hope for the future as I look forward to eternity with Christ. That, that, and that brings me comfort and perspective and peace during uncertain times, which allows me, as I'm being bound to Christ, brings peace when bound for Christ. Brothers and sisters, we live in a world where uh, we, have bro- we have brothers and sisters all over this world who are being bound for Christ. And if you talk to them, like pastors in, in China or whatever, and you talk to these people, they're so calm. I don't understand Because we live in a world that we get freaked out when the train on Adelaide comes. I know, because that happened to me this week twice. But they're so calm. As they are bound in chains for Christ. And we live in a world where I know, historically speaking, that our world can be flipped upside down in 24 hours. So how can we be calm? It's all about making sure our identity is in Christ. How are you going to respond when the news says you're full of hate speech because you you don't support the sexual agenda of the culture we live in? How are you going to react if you lose everything for the name of Jesus, like he says in Matthew 19? How are you going to react when when the rumors begin to swirl about who you are as you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? How do you respond to the rumors as you proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ? Not because you hate something, but because you love them. I I need to go on this. Sometimes we rant about things because we hate it, and it drives me nuts. I don't share the gospel because I hate something. I share the gospel because I love someone. Because if I look at them in their eyes, they're going to hell. I don't care about what stupid flag they're flying. All I know is that they're going to hell. And I love them because Jesus has loved me. And I'm a wretched sinner deserving of one thing and hell alone is it. So, how do you respond when the rumors are beginning to swirl? And as Paul walks in the example of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I think we can see something. His calmness comes from knowing that he is in Christ and that God knows where the truth lies even if those around him don't. He understands this because he's bound to Christ. Because of being united with Christ, Paul has the gift of the Holy Spirit that enables him to have courage and calmness and a reminder of his call. Being bound to Christ gives you an identity, a hope, an assurance, grace, and mercy that can never be taken away. And what gives you a peace during uncertain times? Because being bound to Christ brings peace when bound for Christ. And Paul was bound in the chains because the people loved darkness instead of light. And they suppressed the truth by their wickedness. Paul's accusers don't want to hear the message of salvation, so they imprisoned and eventually will kill him. And Jesus warned us 
that we should not be surprised when the world hates Christians because it hated him first. And I pray for myself, and I pray for you, brothers and sisters, that we would all embrace suffering for Christ with the grace and humility that our brother Paul does. You know, it's amazing what happens as we just sang, because I think everyone was singing this song this morning. It's amazing what happens when we turn our eyes upon Jesus. And it's amazing how everything else dims. Because being bound to Christ brings peace when bound for Christ. And remember, this is all happening with the backdrop of God's goal of bringing the gospel to the Gentiles and using Paul to accomplish that mission. And as I close in prayer, I want to read Philippians 2 because I think it's important for us. I'm not going to do the whole thing. I'm just doing it 5 to 18. Philippians 2, 5 to 18 says this. Have this mind among you, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That alone can be unpacked in a whole other sermon. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in the human form, he, what he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every name should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Therefore, there's another therefore statement. My beloved, he says, as you have always obeyed so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling, with or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Hold fast to the word of life so that in that day of Christ I may be proud that I do not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Lord, help us to reflect your light more and more in our communities, in our workplaces, in our schools, and wherever you place us. Lord, will you continue to call people to yourself? May you, our witness be faithful and effective for your glory. But Lord, we also know that this, there is a strong possibility of suffering for your name. So I pray that we have hearts 
that are so fixed to you that everything else dims in the background. May we not demand more than what our Savior got, but remind us daily of what you have done for us so that we may have peace knowing that we have been bound to you. So Lord, may our eyes be firmly fixed on you, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. May our witness, therefore, be faithful and effective. And amen.